Welcome to the podcast of Living Faith Fellowship in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Now, you will hear Pastor Rich preach the sermon, Countercultural Worship, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. We pray that God will use this sermon to speak to you directly. And now, to Pastor Rich. So John 4.24 kind of gives us the recipe, as it were, of how we are to worship. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship and praise are what we use to express our thankfulness and our amazement of what Jesus does and who he is through his mighty acts. King David in the Psalms said that praise, catch this, is the response to the Lord's glorious splendor and his majesty, his kingship, along with his awesome deeds and greatness. Our praise recognizes God's goodness, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his patience with us. So we should train our hearts to have his heart. We should train our hearts to be of one mind with him. You see, because worship is not just singing. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship means that I tell God what he's worth to me. It's a response for who he is and all he has done. And our response should result in exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should engage every part of who I am. David would say, let all that is within me praise the Lord. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me this morning to the gospel of Mark chapter 14 as we continue in that verse by verse study. Really quickly, let's catch up where we were from last week. Last week, we finished our mini series on the end times where Jesus spoke about his second physical return. And he also told us not to guess when that will be. When those who are left behind see all the signs and wonders of Mark 13, they can know for sure that the end is coming. Jesus said, no man knows the time or the hour. And, and we discussed how that could be because Jesus said he didn't even know. And we said that Jesus, while here on earth, submitted to some human limitations he didn't set aside his deity, but he submitted to the Father. Yet there were other times that Jesus did only what God could do. He raised the dead. He healed people. He forgave sins. He calmed the waves and the wind. And, and so this morning, we're going to hear about a woman who loved the Lord Jesus Christ so much that she broke all cultural norms to come and worship him in a way that could be embarrassing. She was worshiping Jesus in such a radical way, and we're going to learn all about her. So if you have your sermon notes, Roman numeral one, Passover. Passover, if your Bibles are open, Mark 14, let's begin with verse one. Jesus gives us a timeline, and he says, After two days, it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So again, Jesus just finished teaching about future events. And then he sets this timeline. He says, after two days, 
What was going on in Jerusalem? Passover was. And so what is Passover? Passover is a feast where they celebrated what happened when Israel was freed from Egypt under Pharaoh. Maybe you remember the story out of Exodus. Moses pronounced all these plagues on Egypt, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he refused to let the people go. So he pronounced the final plague. This was the Passover where the angel of death would pass over and any home that didn't do what the Lord said, they'd lose their firstborn. But, you know, God is so merciful, even in judgment, he remembers mercy because he said, even though this is what's set to happen, if you will do things my way, I will give you a reprieve. I will save your children. And what was it? Each household had to take a lamb and they had to sacrifice it. The Passover lamb, we're told in Exodus, had to be without blemish, spotless. And it had to be as good as it could be for a sacrifice unto the Lord. Why? Because that lamb represented the lamb of God, who was the perfect, sinless one, who was going to come and give us freedom from the bondage of our sin. There in your notes. On the original Passover, the lamb's blood was to be applied to the doorpost of the house. This demonstrated that that house was purchased by blood. Why is that important? Because sin cannot be atoned for without blood. Hebrews 9:22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And catch this, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. What's so crazy about this sacrifice? It was a sacrifice unto the Lord, but the only part that was offered to God was the blood. The rest of it either had to be discarded or eaten by the family. And you see, here's the thing. In order to have your firstborn spared by the angel of death, the people had to put the blood exactly where the Lord said it should go. Here's the thing. If an Israelite home did not believe in the power of the blood, they could still sacrifice a lamb. But when the angel of death came, their firstborn was going to be killed. But there's something else here about God's mercy. And God gets such a bad rap at times. There's something else about this story. Do you know that even an Egyptian home, if they would trust the Lord Jesus Christ and they would have put blood on their doorpost, their firstborn would have been spared? This wasn't a nationality thing. This was God saying, here's how we know that that house is mine. It's covered by blood. And as the blood was applied to the top and each side of the doorway, God said, do it this way specifically. Why? Because even in the Old Testament, that was the sign of the cross. It was a picture pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do to set us free. Do it this way. Then we're told that the Passover lamb had to be roasted with fire, not boiled. And it had to be cooked with bitter herbs and served with unleavened bread. Why? Because every part of this sacrifice was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he was going to do. There in your notes. The Passover lamb had to come in contact with the fire, just as Jesus had to come in direct contact with the fire of the Father's judgment on sin on our behalf. I'm going to tell you a natural law this morning. So many of us don't like natural laws, right? But you can't change gravity. 
I'm going to tell you another natural law that a lot of us don't like, but this is a truth, whether we like it or not. Paul said in Romans 6.23, for the wages, that's the paycheck of sin, is death. But my favorite word in all the Bible, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Whether we like it or not, the cost of sin is eternal death. It just is. There's nothing that can be done about it except Jesus took the cross. And the bitterness of the cross is reflected with the bitter herbs that the lamb was cooked with. And the unleavened bread, by the way, shows us a picture of Jesus Christ as the bread of life who gives us everything we need. Now, you got to understand, I've mentioned this before, but during the Passover holiday, the population of Jerusalem went from a meager half a million to three million people as people journeyed to the city to celebrate this holiday. And during the, the Passover, all the people were hoping that the Messiah was going to show up. Is this the Passover that Messiah comes in? Is this the Passover where Messiah comes in and frees us from the tyranny of Rome? Is it this year? Is the hope of Israel going to be exposed this year? During the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is when the chief priests and the scribes, all these religious leaders get together and they're like, we want to trick Jesus. And when we get him aside, we're going to kill him. But then they had a second thought there in your notes. Some people who had traveled to Jerusalem, who heard the signs and the wonders and believed Jesus was Messiah, may have gotten mad at the religious leaders. So they decided to wait to kill Jesus. Now, you got to know, these religious leaders had been plotting in their heart for three full years to kill Jesus. Ever since his public ministry started, they are angry at the signs and wonders. They're angry that he has fulfilled all these prophecies and they've been planning his death for quite a while. Maybe you remember back when we were in Mark chapter three, this is what verse six says. It says, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him that they might destroy him. John eleven forty seven says this. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? Stop there for a second. What shall we do that this guy is performing all these miracles? We should celebrate. No, we should kill him. Verse 48. Catch this. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let Jesus keep proving who he is, keep doing these miracles, we're going to lose our nation. And by the way, our nation's more important than Messiah. And notice that the religious leaders didn't want to kill Jesus on Passover, but it's so ironic that they end up doing it anyway. But I've got other news for you. God is not weak. Our God is almighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. This was not just their idea. They were being used as pawns, but it was not just their idea. John 10, 17, Jesus' own words say, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Acts 2, 23 him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose, and catch this, foreknowledge of God, 
you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was the predetermined will of the Father that Jesus would take the cross for our sin. They may have played a part, but it wasn't them who made it happen. Jesus gave his life on that Passover holiday because he is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he was trying to show them and trying to offer them eternal life. But just before the holiday, Roman numeral two, an extravagant gift given at dinner. Look at verse three. Now we get the where. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some there who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. So catch where Jesus is. He's at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. This is also the town, by the way, where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary lived. In fact, John chapter 12 tells us that this Mary is Lazarus and Martha's sister. That's who this is. Now, you got to understand a few things about this. We, we hear this story and we think, well, no big deal. Culturally, understand, a good Jewish man would never eat with a leper. Why? For multiple reasons. If he came in contact with him or touched him, he'd become unclean. But when they ate back then, they had a big bowl of au jus, right? Gravy. And they would take a piece of bread and dip it in the same bowl. If this leper had his hands in that bowl, are you eating from it? I'm not, right? I mean, gross. But most commentators say that by Jesus sharing this meal with Simon was proof positive. Jesus believed with all his heart, knew with all his heart, that Simon was completely healed of leprosy. And in that time, it was unheard of. There in your notes, and this is the important take home, Simon realized that he literally owed his life to his dinner guest. Remember, you got leprosy. You can't associate with public. You can't be around your family. You can't do anything. And here this Jesus, my dinner guest, healed me. I owe my life to you. This dinner's in your honor. But there's someone else there. Martha's there. And maybe you remember the story of Martha. I've been a Martha at times. Maybe you have too. But Martha's the same one who earlier told Jesus, my sister's lazy. Make her help me. I think that's the Rachel O'Toole version. <laughs> Luke 10, 39. Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me all alone to serve? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. 
Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha was a busy bee just running around wanting to serve, which is a great thing. But don't do it until you sat at the feet of Jesus. Don't serve from an empty cart. Don't go and serve without being fed first. And so Jesus said, I'm not taking that away from her. But there's someone else at this dinner. And this one's kind of impressive. Lazarus is there. Remember who Lazarus, the Gospel of John, tells us that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. So you got a leper, you got a dead man, you got all these people at this dinner. Wow. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall and hearing the conversations that night? Just imagine. You know, Simon's like, he healed me. And Lazarus like, big deal, I was dead four days. I stunk and he raised me. I wish I could have been there. Man, what a remarkable conversation that's going on at this dinner, right? There in your notes. And Mary enters with a grateful heart and brings a costly gift of worship to Jesus, a bottle of very expensive perfume. Breaking open the perfume, Mary anointed Jesus with this costly gift. And again, Jewish culture. Here's a woman that walks in and touches a man in public. No, it isn't happening. And so some are there, they're embarrassed and they're outraged, but Mary didn't care. Mary loved Jesus so much, I don't care what you think. I'm going to bless Jesus. There in your notes, so by worshiping this way, we learn that worship's always costly. It's always costly, and I'm not talking about money. Sometimes when you worship Jesus, test me on this, it may cost you a family member. It may cost you dignity. It may cost you money, but most times it's going to cost you your pride. Because true worship is always costly. It's always costly. There are going to be people who aren't as happy as you are about worshiping Jesus. In fact, tell me if this one rings true. Oh, you're one of them holy roller Christians. Oh, no. Are you one of them? But many believe, many commentators believe that this expensive bottle of perfume was actually Mary's dowry. So this was worth a lot of money. And she comes into the room with no forethought of what it's going to cost. And she anoints Jesus. In an act of true worship, she humbly pours that perfume on his head. And she's worshiping the Lord. Some in the room rebuke her. In fact, if the Gospel of John said that Judas openly rebuked her, just gave it to her, quick to rebuke. But Roman numeral three, like I said, my favorite word in all the Bible, but Jesus, but Jesus, look at verse six. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do good for them. But me, you do not have always. She has done, catch this, what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. There are 66 books in our Bible. There's not that many people mentioned in the Bible. But imagine this one woman 
Jesus says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole entire world, what she has done will be told as a memorial to her. Wow. Some are quick to rebuke her, but Jesus said, knock it off. Let her be. And he's just as quick to honor her. He blesses her for the gift and her selfless act of worship. Mary's concern with honoring God. And, you know, so many times in a church service, you, you hear people wanting to point the finger at them. You know, it's all about me, Jesus. You know, not Mary. Mary's it's all about him. And people are criticizing. I don't care. Judas was concerned with personal greed. Mary's concerned with blessing Jesus. What a difference. Judas was a thief. He was also in charge of the treasury. He's got this personal agenda and he says, why wasn't this sold and put into the treasury so I can get my grubby paws on it? He didn't say that, but that's what he meant. <laughs> a lot of people with hidden agendas, you know, try to put this religious spin on it. Why wasn't it sold and given to the poor? And the whole time he's like, when can I steal that? Personal agendas. This very costly gift was worth almost a year's wages, 300 denarii. But Mary displayed this love for Jesus. She didn't care what it was worth. This is my Jesus. And notice Jesus said, she has done a good work for me. The disciples and Judas are all mad that it was a waste. But she was like, he's worth it. He's worth everything. The very next breath I have, he's worth everything. And, and notice it says, she has come beforehand to anoint me for burial. You see, in Israel, they didn't embalm bodies. And so you'd have to anoint the body, put something on it so it didn't stink. And I don't know, did, did Mary know that she was anointing Jesus for burial? I don't know if she knew that or not, but I think maybe she did. But Jesus said what she did, she will be remembered always, always for this great service. This is what David Guzik said. Mary's act was all the more precious because it was planned. Notice the word, she has come beforehand. This wasn't spontaneous. It was carefully planned beforehand. Mary had listened and believed the words of Jesus when he said, I am going to be tortured. I'm going to be crucified. She listened. She believed. And so when he said, I'm going to be delivered in the hands of wicked men, crucified and be killed. Mary's like, I believe him there in your notes. Mary said, if my precious Jesus will be mocked and tortured like this, then allow me to give him some special honor. So I read this and I'm like, teach me to worship that way. Teach me to honor Jesus that way. And so I want to give four points to worshiping Jesus like that. Number one there in your notes. Love for Jesus will motivate us to offer him something dear to us. Again, Mary's alabaster jar of perfume was precious to her. Again, a year's salary, but she didn't care. She thought Jesus was worth it. The offering was way more than people thought was reasonable. That is just too much. And Jesus said, what she did was awesome. And Mary said, I don't care what it cost. I will be more indignified than this, King David said. 
All right, number two, and this is one for us to take home. Love for Jesus within our lives will be attractive to others. In fact, John chapter 12, verse three says, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance. The whole house, not just the room where they were standing, the whole house, everybody was going to smell it. it. It had an effect on everybody. When's the last time your worship, your selfless act to Jesus touched everybody? Sooner or later, everybody's going to know what happened. And again, she's not trying to point the finger. Look what I have done. Look what I have done. She's pointing the finger at he's savior. It's him. Here's what I've learned. And, and maybe you disagree with me, but that's OK. I believe that Jesus is very attractive. And I believe that the reason why most non-believers don't find Jesus so attractive is because we're not showing them the real Jesus. Gandhi said something along them lines, right? You're Jesus I love, but I've never met a real Christian. That's an indictment on us. But Jesus, I believe, is attractive. He should be attractive. It's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance, Romans tells us. When the people outside these walls see Jesus for real, they're going to want what you got. This world is dark. It's lost. It's hurting. And you don't need to go to lost and hurting people and tell them that they're without hope. They're hopeless. They know it. Show them the real Jesus Christ. You see, people are created to worship. We're all created to worship. It's in our DNA. We can't help it. And if you don't worship the Lord Jesus Christ, you will worship something. And that's why you see all these well-educated men and women that fall for the lies of the cults because they were created to worship. And so they got to worship something. And when we die to ourselves and we worship the Lord God in spirit and in truth, that's the two key, key things in spirit. Yes, but in truth, too. And when we worship Jesus that way, he will be attractive. But number three, this sort of love will be puzzling to some as well. Again, there were some there that were just angry. They were just mad that this just happened. Maybe you haven't discovered this, but I've discovered it in my life that, you know, not everybody is so well pleased when I worship Jesus. Not everybody's happy about that. I mean, they've got something going on and, and you say, you know, I understand the sun will rise on the holy and the pagans alike. Rain comes down on Christians and non-Christians alike. I don't know how you do it without Jesus. I can't. Call it a crutch all you want, but I need me some Jesus. I got to lean on something. And if somebody is arrogant against the Lord Jesus Christ, that statement will make them angry. Look at what Judas did. That should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Doesn't that sound so spiritually mature? Oh, my goodness. He used religion to turn around his greed, didn't he? Isn't that great? There are some people with personal agendas. They don't care what Jesus wants or anything about it because they're out to get their will done, not Jesus's will done. There are people who are disgusted by our sacrificial offerings to the Lord. And again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about heart issues. And there are some people who, are you nuts? You get up at what time to go where on Sunday? No way. 
Are you crazy? No. And you do what? The church needs what? Oh, they're just a cult. They're using you. You ever heard stuff like that? I have my whole life. But Mary's sacrifice did draw some. <laughs> and Judas, by his arrogance, pointed to himself. And Mary, because of her heart, pointed to Jesus. All right, number four. Our gifts of love are pleasing to the Lord. I want you to think about all the voices in that room that day. All the disciples and everybody else are like, that was so stupid, blah, 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 blah. But in the midst of all these voices, Mary listened to the voice of truth that mattered. She heard Jesus say, leave her alone. She's done a good work for me. She listened to the voice of truth. What, what a good lesson for us. Stop listening to the squeaky wheels and listen to the voice of truth. Listen to the voice of truth. When we bring Jesus, our gifts with the right motivation, he knows. He knows. Nothing we do for Jesus goes unnoticed. And Jesus noticed. Here's the thing. There's one line in this whole thing that kind of caught my attention as I was studying it. Jesus said, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. Th think about this. We're never by good works ever going to be saved. We're never by good works ever going to make up for what Jesus has done on the cross for each one of us. But in response, in worship, we can do what we can. Jesus, it's all about you. I praise you. I worship you. Don't give your leftovers to the Lord. If you had an honored house guest come to your house, you would never serve them leftovers, unless it was my meatloaf. You would never serve them leftovers. Don't give God your leftovers. Give them your first fruit. Jesus knew he was about to die. He knew he was about to take the cross and he knew he would rise again as well. Think about the disciples here. All through the Gospels, we read that the disciples would go to Jesus and say, Jesus, can I sit at your right side? Can I sit at your left side? Can I be number one in the kingdom? Can I be number two in the kingdom? Me, 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 position, me, 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 me. But this woman, without striving for it, without longing for it, actually got a memorial that was going to last forever. Wherever this gospel is preached, her story is going to be preached to as a memorial to her. I want to point out another time, a very similar story to this in the Old Testament. I want you to think about the time when God tested Abraham through offering of Isaac. Genesis 22.1 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, that's Calvary and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So many people would say if God is all knowing and he sees the future as well as he sees today, why did he have to test Abraham? This was not a test to produce faith. This was a test to show Abraham that he had faith, that he already trusted the Lord. 
And God knows if our faith will stand already. But God also knows that we're frail. And every once in a while, we need to be reassured by the Lord, don't we? The Lord was showing through Abraham and Isaac his future suffering of his only son, the son in whom he loved. Notice he says, your only son, Isaac. But didn't Abraham already have another son, Ishmael? Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Isaac was a work of promise. And God said, I am going to work it through promise, not a work of the flesh. And God told Abraham, go offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Now, what they would do back then is they'd kill the offering first and then burn it. And Abraham must have wondered, tell me if you wouldn't wonder this. The God of covenant, the God of promise, the creator God of the universe wants me to offer this kid. It's almost like what the pagan gods would ask for. The pagan gods, you know, would burn babies and all that sort of stuff. But he's the one true living God. Why is he asking me to do this? Think about this. Wouldn't this test be hard? God has made you a promise. And he said, this promise is going to come through Isaac. Now go kill him. Wouldn't that be hard to accept? God, you've promised. And the vehicle you promised to use, you're telling me to kill. What's the deal? It, It seemed like God was killing the promise with killing the vehicle of the promise. This is important. Take this note down. There in your notes, Abraham had to learn the difference between trusting the promise and trusting the one who made the promise. Abraham, in the book of Hebrews, were told that he believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if he had to. Because the one who made the promise is faithful. That's what Abraham believed. Okay, if God wants me to kill him, he must, he's going to raise him back to life because God made a promise. God is faithful. God's not a liar. And he's going to do it. But how many times did God make us a promise? And then we're like Sarah. God, you made this promise. Let me help you. I've done that. How did it work out for you when you did that? Notice I didn't ask you if you did that. I know you've done that. God's made us promises and we're going to help God out. God, you said you have a spouse for me, so I'm going to run out and find the perfect spouse. And instead of being Boaz, you know what he ends up being. God is faithful. I am known as Peter Patience around the office. Because I'm not. And so oftentimes it's so hard that God has said, this is what I'm going to do. And it's so hard to sit back and believe in the one who made the promise rather than just trusting in the promise. God can do anything. Wait on him. So let's get practical this morning. Authentic worship is not, hear me, about people getting excited about their favorite worship leader, about great musicians, about great lights, projection, fog machines, and all that other stuff. It's not even about your favorite songs. You know, sometimes you hear people say, I really didn't like worship today. Cool, we weren't worshiping you. (laughs) There in your notes, authentic worship is all about people 
truly being moved because Jesus is the God of infinite worth. Worship is more than singing songs. It's telling Jesus what he is worth to you. Worthship. Jesus, this is what you're worth to me. Jesus alone is worthy of all praise. That's why we're here. He's the one that brings hope. He's the one that has promised. And by the way, he's the promise keeper. There in your notes, worship is living our lives, pouring our hearts out to Jesus individually and corporately as living sacrifices for his glory. Worship and praise should be telling Jesus about our amazement about who he is and all that he has done and being thankful for his mighty acts. God is good all the time. Praise also recognizes his goodness, his mercy, his provision for your life, all these things about God. So here it is there in your notes. So we should come to church prepared to worship the Lord as we tune our hearts to his heart. There it is. That's true worship. Tune your heart to his heart. I've gone to many churches where, you know, the worship just wasn't my style. The genre just wasn't for me. That's okay. They're not there worshiping me. And so I close my eyes and I I look full in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You can sing any song you want. If your heart is tuned to his heart, Jesus, it's all about you. And then we will learn to live and love the way Mary did. And it's so countercultural when we when we worship that way. Today's church is all about the church in America. It's all about how can you serve me more? I, I went to a different church because they just weren't doing it for me. You got the wrong idea what church is all about. We're a family of Christ coming together corporately and telling him what he's worth. That's what worship is all about. That's what it's all about. And when you love Jesus the way Mary did, you're going to be attractive to others. You get a bad case of the can't help it, man. I'm telling you, people are going to want what you got. You know, when you walk around like you, you know, you're baptized in lemon juice, and serving Jesus is such a burden. It's no wonder they don't want your Jesus. The love of Jesus will be puzzling to some. But Jesus loves you. And if we show this broken, hurt world what true hope looks like, even in the midst of the storm, how do you handle these tragedies so well? How do you walk around when everything just seems like it's going nuts and you have it together Because God has given me the peace that passes all understanding. He knows the end of the story. He said this is how it's going to work out. And I am fool enough to believe him. Show the hurt world that Jesus. Show the hurt world a Jesus who loves them. And he didn't come to condemn the world, John 3.17 says. Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That's the Jesus this world needs to see. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Every week we're in the back. We would love to pray with you. And I'm not talking about sloppy grace here this morning, folks. What I'm talking about is loving the Jesus who purposely, by the foreknowledge of God, gave himself on a cross so that you might have life. 
go tell them. Go tell them they're dying to hear it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Ridge preach the sermon, Countercultural Worship, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Tune in next week as Pastor Ridge continues the Gospel of Mark sermon series. Join us every Sunday morning, either in person at 8.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. or online at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Watch our live stream on our website, YouTube, or Facebook page. Our website is livingfaithklamath.com. To find our Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram profile, simply search for Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. You can also find these links in the description of this week's episode. All sermons are available on our website. Simply click on the Resources tab and then click on Sermons. If you want to show your appreciation, you can tell others about us, subscribe to our podcast, and you can also leave a review so more people can hear the Word of God. Thank you again, and God bless you.